Hello and welcome to this fourth episode in the Herbert Smith Freehills podcast series on enforcement of arbitration awards across EMEA. My name is Nicholas Peacock and I'm a partner in the International Arbitration Group in the London office. In previous episodes, we talked about enforcing arbitration awards in Russia, Southern Africa and the Middle East. We saw that complications can arise in those jurisdictions when you try to enforce an arbitration award. We talked about the changing attitude of courts in those countries, and we offered some practical tips if you expect to enforce awards in those jurisdictions. Now, we're recording today's podcast while working remotely, and hopefully you will be able to enjoy it wherever you are, on your shortened commute to your home desk, on a socially distanced walk, or even maybe lucky you in the office. Now, today we're talking about the New York Convention, which is the treaty that underlies the system of cross-border arbitration. While many of you will be familiar with the New York Convention, there may be others who have heard the name perhaps, but are not familiar with how it actually works and the latest state of play as regards signatories. Well, this short podcast is for you. I'm pleased to be joined today by Paula Hodges QC, who is the head of the global arbitration practice at Herbert Smith Freehills. Paula is also currently the president of the London Court of International Arbitration. We also have with us Nihal Joseph, an associate in our London arbitration team, who is the producer of this podcast series and today stepped in front of the microphone to act as our MC. Over to you, Nihal. Thanks, Nick. Let's start off this podcast by introducing the New York Convention, or to give it its full name, the Convention on the Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign Arbitral Awards. It was drafted in 1958 and now has an impressive list of 165 signatory countries. Paula, let me ask you first, what are some of the basic things our listeners should know about the convention? Thanks, Nihal. Well, the first thing to say, which is clear from the full name of the convention, is that it applies to foreign arbitral awards. That means that it applies to arbitration awards made in one country where enforcement is sought in another country, both of those countries being signatories to the convention. So, for example... It applies where an award is made in France and enforcement is sought in England, but not where the award is made in France and also enforced in France. Let me just add that when we refer to an award being made in a country to adopt the wording of the convention, we also say that the seat of the arbitration is in that country. The second thing to say is that the convention has a narrow ambit. It is very largely focused on what comes at the end of an arbitration, namely the process of enforcing an award in another country. Although Article 2 does also deal with the recognition of arbitration agreements to avoid national courts seeking to determine the merits of any dispute brought before them. The Convention does not tell you how a tribunal should decide a dispute or what procedure the tribunal should adopt. Although having said that, the grounds for refusing to enforce an award stipulated in the convention might influence the procedure followed in an arbitration to avoid complications at the enforcement stage. Another important area that the convention does not cover is the setting aside of awards by the courts of the seat of the arbitration, and we'll come back to that later. Finally, and perhaps surprisingly for a document that has had such an impact, it is very brief. The convention is only five pages long with 16 clauses. It does not have a preamble, a definitions clause, or any protocols or appendices, 
making it a refreshingly short document. Thanks, Paula. Definitely a less is more approach to drafting, which we don't see so often. With that said, Nick, shall we talk about how an award is enforced under the convention? Certainly. Well, the principle of enforcement under the convention is relatively straightforward. Although, as we know, and as we have been exploring in this podcast series, the realities of enforcement in any particular jurisdiction can be more complex. The party seeking enforcement makes an application in the national court where enforcement is sought, that is, in a jurisdiction where the award debtor is believed to have available assets. In doing so, the award creditor submits the original or a certified copy of the award and the original or a certified copy of the contract containing the arbitration clause. Depending on the languages involved, the party may also need to submit a translation of the award. Now, that's what Article 4 of the Convention says. As ever, you should also check the local law and court rules in case there are additional stipulations in the jurisdiction in question. Now, the Convention works by obliging signatory states to enforce awards in accordance with their own rules of procedure. This means there is no special procedure in the New York Convention itself. Instead, it directs courts the usual procedure for enforcing judgments or awards in their jurisdiction. So it is a local law which would decide, for example, whether the party seeking enforcement can apply for a freezing order, whether it can enforce the other party to sell assets, the priority between creditors if the other party is insolvent, and other issues of this nature. One other point worth mentioning is that Article 6 of the Convention specifically provides that where enforcement is sought and the award debtor is seeking to set aside or suspend the award, the enforcing court uh, may adjourn the enforcement and, in its discretion, order that the party against whom enforcement is sought provide suitable security. Now, of course, the discretion there is in the hands of the local court, but the explicit reference in the Convention to the provision of security uh, on a stay of enforcement may be helpful in persuading the domestic court to utilise any power it has to make such an order. Thanks, Nick. And we'll come on to talk about the grounds on which a party can resist enforcement of a ward. But I think this is a good time to talk about why the New York Convention, despite being a relatively simple document, has had such an impact. Paula, can I ask you for your thoughts on this? Well, in my view, the New York Convention has been transformational for commercial parties doing business across national borders. The Convention was actually proposed by the International Chamber of Commerce, who felt that existing treaties were not fit for purpose in an increasingly globalised world. And the reason for this is if you were doing business with a company in another country and you had a dispute under the contract, it was very difficult to enforce a court judgment in another country. The treaties providing for enforcement of foreign judgments were a confusing patchwork of bilateral and regional treaties, each with its own approach. There were predecessors to the New York Convention, including the 1927 Geneva Convention on Arbitral Awards, but it was felt that something more ambitious was required. I think there was also a desire to make arbitration less anchored to the procedural laws of the country in which the tribunal was based. The New York Convention achieved this by putting in place a framework for foreign awards to be enforced in a relatively straightforward manner. And the uptake of the convention demonstrates its success. 
with 165 signatories and counting, it means that the convention is an almost universal document. Thanks, Paula. Now, let's talk about situations where an award is not enforced. Nick, we talk about concepts such as setting aside an award and resisting enforcement of an award. Can you talk us through these? Yeah, sure. So Paula mentioned at the start that the New York Convention deals only with foreign awards, that is, awards made in another jurisdiction to that in which they're being considered. Now, when we use the phrase setting aside an award, we're talking about a process that happens in the courts of the country in which that award is made, that is, the courts of the seat. This is not a process that's governed by the Convention, uh, but resisting the enforcement of a foreign award is. So that's the first difference. Second, the grounds for setting aside an award, as set out in the domestic arbitration law of the country in question, may be different from the grounds for resisting enforcement under the Convention. And there may also be different levels of scrutiny that courts apply to this process. However, in practice, they often will mirror the Convention. Uh, thus, uh, if we think of Article 34 of the UNCTRAL Model Law on International Commercial Arbitration, which many countries have adopted as the basis for their own domestic arbitration laws, this sets out grounds to apply to set aside an award, that is in the court of the seat, which effectively follow the grounds to resist enforcement under Article 5 of the New York Convention. Thanks, Nick. And let's stick with the concept of resisting enforcement of an award. What are the grounds on which this can be done under the New York Convention? Yeah, good question. So there are essentially seven grounds that are set out in Article 5 of the Convention, and I'll paraphrase them. They are, first, there was an issue as to the capacity of the parties to the relevant arbitration agreement or as to the validity of that agreement. Second, the award debtor was not given proper notice of the appointment of the arbitrator or the proceedings, or was otherwise unable to present its case. Third, the award deals with matters beyond the scope of the arbitration agreement. Fourth, the composition of the tribunal or the arbitral procedure was not in accordance with the parties' agreement or the law of the seat. Fifth, the award is not yet binding on the parties or has been suspended or set aside. Sixth, the award deals with a subject matter that cannot be settled by arbitration under the law of the country in which enforcement is sought. And seventh and lastly, the enforcement of the award would be contrary to the public policy of the country in which that enforcement is being sought. Thanks, Nick. That's a very helpful overview. From a practical perspective, what would you say are the most common grounds for resisting enforcement of an award? Well, one point to mention is those seven grounds, uh, none of them refer to the merits of an award. It's not the role of the enforcing court to sit in appeal on an award. Uh, they're not judging whether the tribunal reached the right result or we hope applied the law in the correct way. The focus of the grounds for setting aside is on the procedure of the arbitration itself, except the last two which I mentioned, which relate to the law or public policy of the enforcing country. So that being said, I would say that in practice, many cases where enforcement is resisted tend to focus on the second and third grounds. That is a party which says it was unable to present its case and that the award exceeded the scope of the arbitration agreement. And also we do see the final ground, that is the enforcement of the award would be contrary to public policy in the courts of the country where enforcement is being sought. Thanks, Nick. Paula, would you agree that these are the arguments you see most often in enforcement cases? 
Yes, I would agree, Nihal. Although, of course, the precise arguments raised depend on the award and the jurisdiction where you were trying to enforce it. But across jurisdictions, we have seen a rise in challenges to awards on due process grounds, particularly allegations, whether meritorious or not, that a party was unable to present its case effectively. This could be a complaint about a procedural decision that a tribunal makes relating to the way the hearing is conducted, the admissibility of certain evidence, or it could be the way in which a tribunal has dealt with a substantive issue. For example, a claim that a party was not given adequate opportunity to deal with a particular contention. Sometimes these are legitimate complaints about the way in which the tribunal has conducted the case. But at other times, they are really complaints about the merits of the tribunal's findings, dressed up as challenges to the procedure. As Nick said, the New York Convention does not envisage enforcement proceedings being an appeal from a tribunal's decision. So it is important for the enforcing court to separate the poor challenges from the legitimate ones. Thanks, Paula. Nick, now you mentioned that the last two grounds for setting aside an award are concerned with the law or the public policy of the enforcing country. Can you explain these issues for our listeners? Well, these last two grounds are somewhat different to the others. They are grounds for the enforcing court to refuse to enforce an award, even if neither of the parties raises them. They are also, as you, as you say, concerned with the law or public policy of the country in which you are trying to enforce an award, as opposed to the law of the arbitration agreement or the law of the seat. The first of these grounds is that enforcement can be refused if the subject matter of the difference is not capable of settlement by arbitration under the law of that country. Now, there are some fairly straightforward examples of this. Most countries will not allow family disputes or criminal law issues to be arbitrated. But there are other less obvious areas, such as intellectual property rights, competition antitrust and company law issues like unfair prejudice to minority shareholders. And there's a spectrum of approaches here. Some jurisdictions are very permissive, others less so. So if your contract might involve or impact wider societal rights beyond the parties to the contract themselves, then again, you need to check the approach in the jurisdiction or jurisdictions where you might enforce an award, ideally at the time you're drafting the arbitration agreement rather than when you come to try and enforce the award. The second of these grounds is that enforcement can be refused if it would be contrary to the public policy of the enforcing jurisdiction to do so. Now, as one would expect, this is a more complicated area. Public policy can mean different things to different societies and uh, and hence jurisdictions, and it can also change over time. In some countries, although they tend to be outliers, the courts have used public policy to refuse enforcement where they find the award is contrary to the law of their country. In others, they have taken a protectionist attitude, especially towards enforcement against state-owned or public enterprises. Uh, The point here is that the New York Convention is a fantastic instrument and is often better than the alternative of seeking cross-border enforcement of national court judgments. But don't just take the words of the Convention off the page in isolation. You do need to speak to someone who knows about the realities of enforcing in the jurisdiction in question. And attitudes change. Mostly, as courts develop more experience with international arbitration, they become less likely to accede to requests by parties to stand in the way of enforcement of valid arbitration awards. 
But, but jurisdictions can also go the other way, sadly, uh, especially where attitudes towards foreign investors or investments change for political or for other reasons. Thanks, Nick. Now, before we wrap up, I thought we would step back for a minute and talk about whether the convention has been successful in achieving its aims or whether there are areas where it hasn't lived up to its promise. Paula, can I ask you to share your thoughts first? Well, we've recently celebrated the 60th anniversary of the New York Convention, but it is fair to say that a lot has been written and said about the need to update the convention to deal with some aspects of the drafting that are unclear or to create more uniformity in the way courts interpret the convention. And while I can certainly see the merit in some of the criticism, I think it is fair to say that the New York Convention has been a tremendous success. It has provided a very stable framework for commercial arbitration to grow with the help and support of courts, arbitral institutions, businesses and lawyers all across the world. It has almost universal uptake amongst countries. Indeed, it seems like we have a new signatory every few months with Ethiopia being the most recent country to adopt the convention. And implementing the convention is seen as one of the ways in which countries signal their support for cross-border commerce. So yes, despite some flaws and inconsistencies in its implementation, I think the convention has been a very effective treaty, and I believe it will continue to be effective in its current form. Thanks, Paula. Nick, would you agree with that, or would you give it a less positive grade? No, I agree with Paula. And in applauding the New York Convention, let's also acknowledge the other contributions of UNCTRAL, otherwise known as the United Nations Commission on International Trade Law. Uh, UNCTRAL was the driving force behind the New York Convention and also the model law on international commercial arbitration, which I mentioned earlier. This gives jurisdictions a, a ready-made arbitration law for them to implement into their domestic legislation, reflecting international best practice and indeed the convention itself. So, for example, in Singapore, where I was previously based, the International Arbitration Act attaches and adopts pretty much all of the 1985 UNCTRAL model law. Indeed, the model law has been adopted in about 80 countries, and even in countries that have not adopted it completely, it remains an influential document. And lastly, of course, UNCTRAL also came out with a set of rules for ad hoc arbitrations, uh, that is, arbitrations that are not administered by a particular institution, and the parties are free to adopt separately in their contract, and with which many listeners will already be familiar. For those who are not, that is perhaps a topic for another time. Thank you very much, Nick and Paula. That concludes our very short introduction to the New York Convention today. Thank you for listening, and we hope you found this interesting. Please do get in touch in the usual way to share your feedback or if you have any questions for us.